0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Growth Equation Podcast. Um, today we are doing an Ask Us Anything. We've reached out to our Patreon supporters, um, eliciting questions about a wide range of topics. Uh, we were overwhelmed with responses. So while we'd love to get to all questions, Um, unfortunately, because you guys don't want to listen to us talk for three hours, we won't be able to. But what we've done is had the one and only Caitlin Stahlberg, my dear wife, pick the questions that she thought were best. So that way y'all can get upset with her, not us, if she didn't read your question. And Caitlin's going to ask us these questions. Steve and I have not seen them. We gave Caitlin the keys to our Patreon account, um, and so if the prices went up to a hundred dollars, just know that you know she wants to feed our child better food or something. Um, not sure if that joke's going to land, but with no further ado, um, here's Caitlin.
1: Thanks for having me. i being told to move closer to the mic. I'm I'm out of. I need more reps, you guys. Okay. So thanks for having me, and yes, you guys got a lot of very interesting questions, and I look forward to this the AMA with you guys. I, um, we'll start with some Olympic-themed questions, and then move on to the more um, bread and butter of what you guys talk about on a on a usual basis. So the first question I'll post to Brad, since I know he just wrote something on the topic, this question comes from Eric, and Eric writes, When an athlete gets physically hurt during competition, say sprains an ankle doing a vault or a quarterback's leg gets broken during a sack and they can't continue with the rest of competition, no one questions it. They get attended to by doctors and carried off by teammates and they get put on a stretcher and everyone, you know, that's just what happens. That's part of the game. What needs to change and what will it take for mental injuries to be treated the same way? by fans, by announcers, by sport organizations, accepting that the athlete is injured and can't compete, showing them compassion rather than anger. So obviously this is in our Olympic segment because of um, Simone Biles uh, in particular. So Brad, I'll turn it to
0: you. Well, that's a really challenging and good question, Eric. My mind goes in uh, a couple immediate directions. The first is I think what makes the physical injuries perhaps quote unquote easier to deal with is that they are much more objective. So if you tear a hamstring or you break a foot or you are freaking dizzy because you're concussed and there was a play before where all the fans saw you, you know, in a head to head collision, um, it's very clear that you are injured and you ought not to be playing if you try to sit out a game because you have a bruise on your foot, I bet you're going to get a lot of the same reaction that perhaps Simone Biles got, which is tough it up. You've just got a bruise on your foot. So I think the first thing that differentiates the two and the challenge is that um, generally speaking, you can't see mental illness. Um, a big part of it is people put on a facade that everything is fine, which makes it even harder to see mental illness. Um so that's I think like the first big challenge. Then the second thing, and Caitlin's right, I did write about this a little bit, is it's a real tightrope with stress and um mental injury, particularly anxiety and depression. Uh those are the two disorders I know best personally and also as a writer and a researcher. If you give in to the anxiety and depression too much, it just gets worse. If you try to push through it when it's really bad, that's not good easier either. Excuse me. So there's a real tightrope to walk here. And I think in the case of someone like Simone Biles, and, and I'm going to hand it over to Steve because he wrote about this, what, what's at stake makes a big difference. So if you have nine out of 10 or eight out of 10 anxiety or disassociation before you're about to launch yourself 10 feet into the air, you should pull the plug because if you mess up, it's catastrophic injury. If you have, nine out of 10 or eight out of 10 anxiety before public speaking, where the biggest thing that happens is you feel super nervous on stage, or or maybe you struggle to speak. It's a different equation. Maybe you push through, maybe not. It's not so bread and butter. So I don't think we're ever going to get to true parity between mental health and physical health, because it's not as objective. It's not something that everyone kind of intuits and understands. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people where the nuance gets lost, celebrating everyone that avoids everything or saying everyone should just push through when, in fact, like so many things, the answer is it depends. Now, try to tell this to, you know, four beers into a six pack people on their couch hemming and hawing during a game and have them go down this line of if then it depends thinking you're not going to get that. Unfortunately, I don't think.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Brad, and I'm glad you brought that nuance in there of, um, you know, what the consequences could be impacting things. I think the other part that is really important here is that often, just based on, I don't know, societal norms, we separate the physical and the psychological, and they're actually deeply intertwined. And Simone Biles is a great example of this, Right. Because, you know, psychologically, like, she has what's called the twisties, but that that has a huge physical component In in the fact that, like, her perception, like, where she is when she's flowing through the air, she loses that feedback, which is a physical, like, physiological response. It's not something mentally she can just flip the switch on it's a deep underlying physiological response that she has no control over just like we have no control over the pain of let's say a hamstring tear and not and making it where we're not able to run or sprint or whatever have you so i think (laughs) i think ultimately like better understanding helps like a world where we can see that this physical and psychological are often intertwined helps, but I think you're right. Like the nuance is never going to be like the simple, easy answer when we're watching sport uh, because that takes time and effort and you can't see some of the underpinnings that are going on psychologically or even physiologically. And, you know, that's a shame, but it's kind of the reality of, of where we're at.
1: All right. The next question comes from Lauren. Lauren says, hi, Brad and Steve. I followed your work for a few years now, and I really find a lot of value in your podcasts, articles, and books. Thanks for the work that you do. Now, my question, I'm a big fan of the Olympics. I love watching all the athletes compete. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for all the tremendous sacrifices they must make to get to the top of their sport. The post-event interviews of the medal winners is interesting, touching, and often entertaining. But I often wonder why they're not interviewing the other U.S. athletes that didn't medal. Am I wrong to think that we should be celebrating every U.S.A. athlete that's good enough to be there and compete? Would love to hear your take on this. So I'll go to Steve first. And I mean, my initial reaction is the Olympics is a television show. And so they're going to focus on the winners and they're going to focus on the stories that are going to be the most entertaining tug at your heartstrings. Um, so I guess, you know, how I would also put this question is what can we learn from the other athletes, from the athletes who make it there, but don't make it to the podium? What are their sacrifices and achievements teach us?
2: You know, that's a really good question. I think a lot of it has to do with how we view and see competition which is we often see it through this binary lens of either you win or you lose. And we have this kind of obsession with with winning. I mean, you see it in the Olympics in terms of, you know, how we view success, which is almost all based on the medal tables. Um, Interestingly, some countries base it only on gold medals. Others base it on total gold, silver, and bronze medals. So I think it's just part of how we view sport and competition, unfortunately. As to what we can gain from listening to those who make it there and don't meddle, I actually think their stories are a lot more interesting. Because these are the people who like, aren't going to have a life-changing amount of money or life-changing moment from winning the Olympics or even meddling at the Olympics. They're the people who are going to be Olympians and maybe place 8th, ninth, 10th whatever in their event and which is hugely successful for them but they're going to have to go back, you know, to their day jobs a lot of time, go back where they're not, you know, heavily sponsored professional athletes who can solely focus on this and they're going to have to, you know, make ends meet and deal with um, the fact that they achieved something that very few people on the planet achieved which is being Olympians but are often not seen as widely as successful or often seen as like, why didn't you, why didn't you medal? And I think, you know, hearing and understanding some of those stories and also those athletes are often the ones who persist in it because of the love of the sport and make even more sacrifices because again, they don't have the financial backing of perhaps being a favorite or potential medal winner. So You know, what I would do is you can listen to and hear a bunch of their stories if you go to the niche sports. So if you go to, you know, the people who cover track and field on the basis, you'll see some of the stories of some of these Olympians who don't make the final or don't medal. And that's what I would suggest.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, um, you know, Steve, you'll know better than me. Is it the Hanson's Brooks running team? They're based in um, like suburban Detroit. And a part of their program is that the people that like move to Detroit to train with the group, the coaching staff or the program helps them find jobs. And I remember that like all these runners who are easily in the top 15 in the country are like working at Home Depot in between their workouts. And it's just very, uh, it's a very striking um, chasm, I guess, between the the Home Depot job and trying to qualify for the Olympics. Only thing I'd add there is... um, You know, if you're watching with kids or young people or just very open minded folks, I think it's really helpful just to celebrate that those people are in the arena and just competing and being in the arena is um, really neat because as we write about so frequently, you know, the result is fleeting. Like winning a gold medal, you're up on that stand hearing the national anthem maybe for three minutes at most, but the five to 25, in some cases, years that led up to winning that gold medal, the people you trained with, the things that you learned about your body, um, how you learned to manage the highs and lows, that's the stuff that regardless if you got gold or finished eighth place, basically all athletes have in common. And that's the stuff that I would argue um, makes you, quote, unquote, more successful in in life.
1: Great. So we're going to leave our Olympic segment Um, And move on to a question from Marshall. I love this question. Marshall says, I've been thinking a lot about self-care versus self-absorption. At what point does self-care move over and become self-absorption? Also, what is a true definition of self-care? I really struggle with this as I try to follow. It is in giving that we receive and mood follows action. Specifically, if I give myself time and energy, if I give my time and energy to someone else or to some activity, I feel a lot better about myself. But I think some people, myself included, might take self-care too far and make it an excuse to avoid hard things or avoid putting oneself in an uncomfortable situation or in a gross situation. So basically wondering um, how you toe the line between self-care and self-absorption. And I'll put say that you know I put myself on the other end of the spectrum. I think I tend to um, be worried either about a perception that I'm self-absorbed or about actually acting in line with that such that maybe I don't do self-care enough. Um, So Brad, I'll I'll go to you first. um, And then we can talk about how to give me space to care for myself.
0: (laughs) So the first thing I'd say is I don't know if it's that you don't do self-care enough or if sometimes it feels in the moment easier to like be anxious and to worry and to just do something than to actually give yourself space. So sometimes I think like in your situation that doing something is maybe the self care.
1: Well, and I think also sometimes, and I can make lots of generalizations about being a woman and being a mother, but I think that the thing I want to do is the caring for someone else. Right. So like, how do you then, how do you then, um, you know, it's, 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 it's it's more complicated than it might seem.
0: Yes. And no, Um, I'm going to give like the, um, like a very kind of Eastern, philosophical tradition perspective which is to pay close attention to what's happening in the present moment and then to ask yourself like what will what will help me if you're feeling like you need help is it giving others is it mood follows action is it resting um, is it some combination of those things so I think it really starts with kind of shutting out the whole cultural like humdrum of self-care means, You know, getting a facial self care means having your neighbors take care of your kids. Self care means taking care of your kids because self care can mean a million different things to a million different people. And I think that when you get caught up in that, you kind of forget that, like, what actually matters is pay close attention to, like, what are you experiencing and what do you think will help? And then after you do that, treat it as an experiment. Did it help or did it not help? I think, particularly on this notion of, like, Sitting in bed and resting versus mood fall is action, they're both really effective strategies. It just depends on when you use them. And the only way to learn is to experiment and to pay um, to pay really close attention uh, to to kind of what you get from from each.
1: Can I give a quick anecdote that may or may not be a little bit of a non sequitur, But I was talking with the neighbor for a while about some challenges that I had over the past week and the emotions that it brought up and And she sent me a text that said, don't forget to give yourself some love today. Go easy on yourself. Replenish and restore. And my my, my response to that was, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) What do I do? Like, I need more direction.
2: You know, I, I, I think, Brad, you nailed it in the sense that the main question you need to ask is, does it actually make a difference and does it actually help? And a lot of times, you know, Caitlin, you gave a great example there is we don't know what helps or what we should do or if it'll work or not until we try something. And that's where that awareness comes in, in the sense that, you know, try something, going for a walk, like resting, like sleeping in, taking a nap, whatever your your self-care thing is, like try it. And if it legitimately like puts you in a better place, makes a difference, then keep it and try it again. And if it doesn't, like try something else. Another thing that I'd add in here is like on this balance between self-care and self-absorption is get an outside perspective. You know, you just gave an example of a friend shooting you a text. And what that reminds me of a lot of times is in my own coaching practice where I watch someone else who's beating themselves up or obviously needs rest or recovery. And I can see it but they can't see it in their own own you know own life. They feel guilty for taking it or something like that. So having an outside perspective, whether that's your your spouse, a coach, a therapist, or a good friend, I think that goes a long way to helping us figure out where we are on that spectrum.
0: One more thing to add, it's very top of mind because I just had this conversation with a coaching client um before we started recording is For those situations when you're not sure if you should follow the whole mood follows action, get out and do something versus like rest deeply, Um, there is a psychoanalyst named James Hollis, and he has this beautiful question. He says, ask yourself, will this diminish me or enlarge me? And if the answer is diminish you, you probably shouldn't do it. If the answer is enlarge you, you should. So how do you play this with it's like, should I just like kind of call phone it in today, stay in bed, watch Netflix, whatever, or should I go do the thing? Well, ask like, will this diminish me or enlarge me? And if you're really feeling tired and you know, deep down inside that you're just boxed, then guess what? Like staying in bed and watching Netflix will in fact enlarge you because it will restore, it will fill up the cup to use our neighbor's language. It will give you um, the energy that you need to get going. Whereas if you know, deep down inside, you ought to get going, then that that'll be the answer that enlarges you. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's no kind of right or wrong. It's a very another, it depends, pay close attention. I feel like we should call our podcast, it depends, pay close attention.
1: Um, so another question about paying close attention internally is from Dion who says, what about the seemingly simple idea that most experiences or endeavors involve a spectrum of affect, sometimes within a short span of time, and we should train to work with everything from elation to abject suffering. So I think the question means how do you how do you manage your emotions and the highs and lows, uh, whether through, you know, whatever activity you're you're doing. So I'll I'll have that over with. Let's see, whose turn is it? I think it's Steve's turn.
2: All right. Yeah, that's another good question. And it falls right in line with the pay close attention aspect of it. Is I think, you know, first off emotions are fine and good all spectrum of them i i think i like to see them as like signals or messengers that communicate something to you um and sometimes we're going to want to listen to that message and pay attention to it and other times we're going to sit there and be like you know what you know this isn't the right message like i'm just going to let this one pass by and i think part of managing your emotions is developing that ability which starts with having awareness and understanding of them and what i mean by that is awareness like where you can feel and experience them but also like disentangle different emotions and experiences because what often happens is we we kind of lump everything together into like either good or bad and and miss the nuance of, of different emotions. And there's this wonderful um, uh, thing called the motion wheel, which essentially outlines like different nuance of different variations of happiness, sadness, et cetera, and dives into it. So you can really get to the crux of what you're feeling instead of just, you know, settling for the blah, easy. I feel happy today. Um and that, you know, research shows that really helps with allowing you to make sense of and then also dealing with it because you understand what what you're kind of experiencing.
0: Love it. It's what I wrote about in the newsletter this week um is precisely this question. So I echo everything that Steve says uh some other language that might help uh you understand this is you know, we often talk about like creating space between stimulus and response. And in this case, the stimulus can be feeling the emotion. And if you fuse with that emotion, there's no space. So Steve mentioned distangling the emotion or distangling yourself from the emotion when you need some space. And one way to do this is to label what you're experiencing. And the thinking behind this goes and the research shows that when you label something, it loses its power because you are now separate from it. And even in that labeling, there are some distinctions. So you can say, I am excited, or you can say excitement is happening. And in order to create space, you could probably guess listener, but excitement is happening is the better route. Because you would never say when it's raining, I am rain, you're getting rained on. Well, you're getting excited on, or you're getting sad on, or you're getting angry on. So the more that you can use labeling to create some space between like you, your awareness of what's happening and what's happening, the more you can work with the emotion. Because once you're fused to an emotion, there's no working with it. You become it. You see this often with anger. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh writes beautifully, he's got a book called Anger about the worst thing we can do with anger is to fuse with it because then we just are anger. Whereas if we can create some space, then we can experience anger. And for positive emotions or even negative emotions that feel really important to fully experience, maybe such as grief, you can choose to fuse with grief, but then you can choose to create some space. So it's really about opening up that choice. How much do I want to ride this wave versus how much do I want to become the wave? Um, And as Steve mentioned, like the more granular you can be in naming the emotion, the better. And the more that you can use language of... Again, anger is happening. Grief is happening. Excitement is happening. Happiness is happening. Um, You know, it sounds kind of trite and so simple, but language shapes how we think. And if you start doing that for a few days, my hunch is you will actually start to find some more space. I mean, I know this. I see this with coaching clients all the time. The
2: the example I like to use in the athletic realm is if you've done any sort of endurance uh, sport, you know the difference between various... Like degrees of pain and fatigue, right you can understand when when a pain is just you know the experience of working hard versus when the pain is an injury that could you know derail your attempt or lead to something damaging. You learn that nuance well, we need to learn the same sort of nuance of the emotions that we feel and experience so that we can disentangle them, have space and, you know, respond in the appropriate manner.
1: Great. Um, So this next question comes from John, and I think it it touches a little bit on what some of the questions we've had previously, but I think it also warrants just being addressed head on is how to focus on efforts, not outcomes. Simple as that. So I will give this one to Brad.
0: I'm going to go right to um, what we wrote about in the Passion Paradox, the 48-hour rule, which can be the 24-hour rule or the 72-hour rule. It could probably even be the one-week rule, but it basically states the following. After you experience an outcome, be it a really good outcome or a really bad outcome, you should give yourself a set window of time, let's say between 24 hours and 72 hours, to really experience all the emotions that come with that outcome. If you won, you can gloat, you can be proud, you're the best. If you lost, you can be sad, you can despair, you're hopeless. But after 24 to 72 hours, get back to doing the work itself. There is no better cure for being overly excited that you won a medal or overly bummed that you didn't win a medal than getting back in the weight room. There is no better cure for missing a bestseller list or for making a bestseller list than starting to write again. And this really does go both ways because Steve and I have missed bestseller lists And we've been really bummed. And I've shared the experience with my close friend, Ryan Holiday, who's made bestseller lists. And he's been really bummed because two days after, whether you make it or you don't, you realize that you're kind of the same person. So you might as well get back to doing the work itself. Otherwise, you're going to be on this emotional roller coaster and it will just lead to more and more craving and chasing specific results that are outside of one's control. Um, So I believe that we also have a... um, a long time ago, growth equation post titled, do the work, do the work, do the work. And that is my advice um, to this question. It's the advice I give myself when I feel myself getting caught up in emotion.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I love that, that rule. Um, I think the other part of it, and this ties into it, is just be aware of how you judge yourself. If you're consistently judging yourself based on the outcome then like that is just a little reminder indicator that you need to shift how you're, you're rewarding or incentivizing yourself. You know, again, in the athletic realm, I see this all the time. Whenever an athlete is sitting there talking about, you know, their place or their time and how, you know, this was good or this was bad. And I have to get in there as a coach and remind them, wait a minute, like where was your effort at? Right. Like, how did you execute on what you were planning to do? And I think, like, outside of that athletic realm, taking that same mindset, reminding yourself to incentivize, reward the effort, um, over judging yourself based on the outcome is just, you know, something to keep you on track as well.
1: Great. So our next question comes from Gonzalo, who says, any thoughts on how actively participating in social media makes highs too high and lows too lows? Why do you think pro athletes expose so much and so frequently to the opinions of non-peers? So I'll lend this one over to Steve. And like my immediate reaction is very short. And it's why I would not make a good podcast host is like that they're human. And they probably just do it at the same rate that we do. But they're famous, right? So that's why we see it. Um, but it is also interesting because they are right exceptional at what they do. And so they are, by definition, you know, making these statements out to people who don't really get it. You know, don't don't have the same perspective and don't have the same experience as they do. Um, so yeah, Steve, what do you have to say about that?
2: You know, I think I'm gonna just turn the podcast over to you, Caitlin, because you nailed it. They're human. And we 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 like to keep uh, you know, world class professional athletes and hold them on a pedestal but they're human beings just like the rest of us and they respond to things just like the rest of us you know i'll never forget a couple of the uh, different conferences i've been to with professional sports teams and for a while the conversation was like how do we get these athletes off twitter at at halftime you know because they're they're looking and seeing Professional sport, uh, professional athletes, looking and seeing the response of fans at halftime, you know, while the game is going on, and that just shows you that again, they're human beings. Like they're susceptible to the highs and lows, susceptible to those hits of dopamine and and feeling good of seeing people celebrate you, and also the anger and angst that comes with criticism as well. It's really freaking hard to like step away from that. So, you know, the bigger question, which I think Brad is going to get at a little bit, is like being aware of what role social media plays in your life and like setting limits and boundaries and even asking a question if it's if it's worth it. And if I if I was a professional athlete, you know, who had a guaranteed contract and didn't need the followers or fans to, you know, support my business, I probably wouldn't be on it. You know, but some people have to and because it's part of the marketing game and it allows them to do what they they do. So it's a very difficult balance to uh, to wrestle with there. Bingo,
0: you read my mind. So I defend social media because like there are some positives. And I think, Steve, for us currently in the work that we do, it allows us to reach many people and it's pretty instrumental to us being able to do our jobs um, that could change. If we write a book that sells a gazillion copies and we have a gazillion newsletter followers or Patreon members, then maybe we won't be on social media then. Um, some athletes need it for the same reason that we do, because their stardom or their, their their rise cannot just be the sport itself. That said, it is pretty mind-boggling that stars spend so much time on social media. If I was coaching a young kid coming up in sport that was truly a star i would really try to point them in the direction of the greg popovich tim duncan approach so tim duncan is widely regarded i think as the best power forward of all time if not top two top three greg popovich widely regarded as one of the top five coaches of all time you watch tim duncan and greg popovich do a press conference you give them they give the media nothing to work with you know, give us your thoughts on the game, Coach Pop. They score more points than us. Uh, well, can, can you say more on why that happened? Yeah, they put the ball in the hoop more times than we did. Tim, like, how do you feel? I feel great. Uh, can you say more? I want a championship. Tim, how do you feel? Losing's really hard. Um, like, what's going through your mind right now? I just told you, losing's really hard. So... Both of them are going to be remembered as stars because at their crafts they're they're top of the world in what they do. I don't know if it was just a, a personality temperament that they're just super introverted or if it was a conscious choice. But seeing this whole like Hubaloo with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, um, it makes me think like if it was a conscious choice, it was brilliant. Because if I'm Naomi Osaka going forward and press conferences are really hard for me, I'm studying Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich game tape. And I'm taking their approach to press conferences because yeah, there might be a rule you have to do press, but guess what? There's no rule that you have to give answers. And um, if anything, like Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich, I probably remember their press conferences
2: more than any other athletes because they're so jarring because they just don't say anything. And when they do say something, it's like very intentional. And, and the message is clear, right? So I, I'm with you a hundred percent. I think that, you know, you have to weigh its its benefits and its downfalls. And if it's causing you a lot of angst and anxiety and whatever have you, then it might be best to, to get off of it.
0: So I'm going to do a shameless plug. Listeners, please, please, please buy our books and support us because I can speak for myself and I'm going to speak for Steve too. We would love nothing more than to be able to be like, we wrote this book. Why'd you write the book? Because we wanted to. What's in the book? Read it. Do you think the book is good? Yeah, I wrote it, so I would I, it wouldn't make me a good podcast guest. But if we could ever get so big time that that's how we could respond. I this is my pledge to you, podcast listeners, that I will become the Greg Popovich presser of the whole like publishing industry, and I hope my agent's not listening.
1: All right. Um. So our next question comes from Luke, and shifting gears, he says, "What do you all think COVID has exposed in our society?" especially the recent COVID resurgence that despite the readily available ability to squash the spread, what has that resistance to the vaccine exposed or revealed in our society and could even be good things. That's what I I wanted to end on. It could even be good things. (laughs) We all need some good things. I want to end every phone call I have now. I was just talking to my sister and we were, you know, doom spiraling for like half an hour. And then at the end, it's like, let's tell me something good. I just feel like, uh, you know, And you can even uh, opine on what that means.
0: <laughs> so infant mortality, I believe, is at all-time lows. This is where we
1: are at. <laughs>
0: so so infant, mortali- infant mortality, all-time lows. Violent wars, all-time lows. Yeah, there's a lot to really be concerned about. And it's really hard to hold both of those things at the same time. So to what does it expose about society? I think three big things. And I'm going to go Tim Duncan on this to not get myself in trouble. Number one, lots of people are scared for lots of reasons. Number two, media bubbles have a bigger impact than we think. Number three, lots of people are dumb.
2: (laughs) Man, you're giving me a lot to work with. Um, How about the
1: last one as education is... Very important. No, because lots of
0: people are quite educated and make the same choice. So it's tribalism. Yes. And it's that... four
1: things. Because I, I I do think that there are people who are dumb and there are people who are uneducated because dumb people chose to not educate them. Okay, that's fair.
2: I mean, I think, you know, the bigger thing it shows, and I'll try and stay relatively positive, is how much tribalism and what we tie our identity to impacts our thinking and beliefs, because as as you rightly pointed out, there are some very smart people who go against what all the research, all the science, all the data you know clearly points towards. And and how does that happen? I, I think it's an identity tribal thing. You like convince yourself that your tribe is right instead of looking at evidence or data. And, you know, I don't know if this is positive or or not, but I think that what it's shown me or emphasized me to me is be careful of what you tie your sense of self to. Like even if you favor some political party or some group or some religion or what have you, it's like it's not a good thing when you agree with every single thing that that group or tribe, you know, subscribes to for the most part. You you need to have the ability to think and like see data and change your mind based on evidence and facts. And if you can't do that, then that's a real problem and I think we're seeing that real problem in society. So for myself, it's pushing me to like Gain that awareness to keep myself from drifting uh, too far to any any identity and and, you know, making sure that I can always think.
0: And to work with like anger, it's a conversation we've been having a lot because, yeah, like is it like me to jump to people are dumb? No. Do we have a three and a half year old child that is unable to be vaccinated and do I feel like I have just no time for people that are refusing to get vaccinated because they endanger my child? Absolutely. Um, and my intellectual brain can say, yeah, they might be educated, uneducated. They might be scared. They might be in a bubble. But if, you know, my town becomes a hot spot and my son gets COVID, you know, at school, then I'm going to be pissed off because this is avoidable. So it's really, really challenging to practice what you preach when, you know, there's been a lot of questions on emotion when emotions are running high and things really matter. Um, yeah. And the tribalism is bad. We'll put it in the show notes, but there was a really good, we, we had it in our newsletter maybe a month or two ago and we, we do avoid politics. Um, but I think this was broad enough that we felt it was more just like sociology, but George Packer wrote a really good story in the Atlantic. Um, about kind of the chasms in American culture and how they're all connected to tribe and narrative, um, and how in Packer's view, the only way out of this is to start to form more of a American narrative that, um, it seems like an impossible task right now, but I think we have to do it. Otherwise, every time there's anything that requires group participation, it's going to be division.
2: Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's what it's exposed. And unfortunately, like, you know, we've talked about this offline, Brad, is you see this seep over into things that like sport, for instance, like the the reaction to Simone Biles or the reaction to the two high jumpers sharing the the gold medal is largely split along, you know, political tribal um sides, which is just kind of mind blowing to me. So it's, I don't know how we solve this problem, but here's to hoping someone figures it out.
1: Okay. So now we're going to go to a really fun topic because everyone loves to talk about nutrition and what we eat.
0: Oh, wait, you're asking the hardest topic. I thought COVID in politics was the hardest topic. Now nutrition, <laughs> it gets oh, harder. All
1: tribes in this one. Um, No, I specifically put this question next because it's, you know, everyone loves to talk about this stuff. So this question is from Michael, and it says, um, I'd love to hear you guys talk about nutrition. It seems to be such a huge part of wellness. I'm getting so many mixed messages, fat versus carbs, meat versus not, that some input from you guys would be valuable. So I know that ne- neither of you are nutritionists, but I know that Steve obviously has learned a lot in his research and his experience coaching athletes, and Brad speaks as though he knows a lot to me. <laughs> So, what do I say? <laughs> so, I, although I'm not, a, he has a master's in public health. So, wait, why don't you
0: tell everyone then? What's my nutrition advice that I speak so much about?
1: Your, your nutrition advice? Yeah. Well, um, you, what well, we had a conversation about whether or not nine eggs a day was too many. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. <laughs> I was on the side of yes. Uh, <laughs> we also had a conversation about um the fact that he doesn't eat fruit or vegetables <laughs> often. Unless I like point him out, no, Steve, you cut some of this stuff. Um
0: no, this is what makes the podcast good. I do eat
1: fruits and vegetables. He, he does eat fruits and vegetables, but, you I know, I do feel, you know, I, I do do like I'm doing the tricks of like washing them and cutting them and making them like easily available in the fridge and at dinner and stuff. Um, but I, yeah, Steve, I'll let you go first.
2: I I love the framing that you just did because it was about how Steve researches and then how Brad Seems to think he knows about nutrition, which I'm just going to say sums up our relationship perfectly, Brad. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, when we talk about nutrition, this is, we could have, I don't know, probably 10 episodes on this topic if we really wanted to dive into it. But whenever nutrition comes up and we're asked, like, oh, fat or carbs, like, you know, where does that fall? What diet is best? I'm always reminded of this class I took in grad school. that was nutrition, history of nutrition, essentially. And the professor put up a couple slides that went back to the, the eight, mid-1800s on the prevailing dietary advice at the time. And basically, every decade or two, it switched back and forth, you know? Uh, from once we understood what macronutrients were, where you know, this food was the devil, and then like carbohydrates were the devil, and then fat was the devil. and it just flipped back and forth from again the late 1800s until um, until today, essentially. And I think that is, you know, uh, the, the over over or prevailing wisdom, that kind of takes hold is we like to, again, get in our tribes and demonize when the reality is that all food is both good and bad, um, and that the basic gist of it should be keep it really simple unless you suffer, you know, from something that is very... I don't know specific. For in- for instance, keto can work very well with a very specific population of uh, of <clears throat> diabetics, for example. There's some research on that, but for most of it, it's don't over overcomplicate it. Make it something that's sustainable. Like eat food that is real. Um, don't. Sweat too much about it. Make sure that you're not over consuming and you're exercising and all that stuff so that you're burning about as much as you take in. And if you do that, you'll be fine. So that's my gist.
0: Yeah, I was getting dogged on. My gist is the very simple, and it's just pure Michael Pollan, which is like eat real foods, not too much, mostly plants. And it is true. Caitlin does have to push the plants on me. Um, but that's it. And if you wanted to go like a level more nuanced, yeah. If you want to, um, if you're, if you feel like you would be healthier at a lower weight, then run a short caloric deficit. If you feel like you want to gain weight, run a short caloric surplus. Do that over time, make incremental progress. If you are connecting how you look or your weight to your identity and how you feel, um, it's probably time to uh, at least talk to a friend about what you're experiencing, if not a professional. And um, it is really tricky because there's a ton of disordered eating in this country. Uh, 66% of adults are overweight or obese. And among the 33% who are eating disorders are seeing a recurrence and prevalence. So it's really hard to eat well in the 21st century right now. And I think this is um, very much tied into an industry that's a gazillion dollar industry that's based on all these myths about how to eat well. Um, whereas if you just ate food, as Michael Pollan says, and moved your body, most people are probably there. There are allergies, there are certain chronic conditions, um, but most people eating real foods gets you there.
2: Yeah, the only thing I'd add there is stay away from simple narratives and stay away from demonization of things. If you do that, you're going to be okay. The example I always give to those who... Um, have recently had had like a very anti-carbohydrate is if you look at the diets of some of the best runners in the world, uh, the Kenyans, like it's it's like 90 percent of their diet is carbohydrate with a very large percentage of that being pure sugar from uh, the tea uh, that they they consume quite frequently. So, and you know, why can they do that? Because they're running like a hundred miles a week so they can handle it. you know, so again, stay away from simple narratives. Be on the lookout for demonization. If a diet demonizes something, then it's probably not, you know, the best diet for you.
1: Thanks, and we got our last question now. Um, this has been really. Fun. Thank you. you guys for having me. Our last question is from Peter. And he says, We hear a bit about your approach to writing, but what about fitness goals? What fitness goals do you both have at this stage? Do you set goals like I'd like to run a half marathon at this pace, at this pace, or I'd like to lift this much weight? Or are you purely process driven? So I'll go with Steve first.
2: I have no goals. <laughs> And let me explain this. Brad gets on me for this all the time. But for the, the majority of my life in terms of exercise was very much goal driven. Right. I had on my wall. I had times that I wanted to run. Right. Plastered on my wall as a kid going into college. Like I always had goals and always had something that I wanted to accomplish fitness wise, exercise, running performance wise. So part of the last decade of my life has been to get away from that and get more towards like this process and enjoying it for what it is. So my goal instead of being written down hard, you know, um very concrete is just in the back of my mind, I guess if I had to say a goal was just to stay fit enough where I feel good about, you know, myself. I feel like my exercise is a positive addition to my daily habit. And, you know, I feel okay where I can go on runs with people and not feel overly fatigued or tired. So I base my entire re- exercise off of that, which means I run most days, but most days it's like 30 minutes to 50 minutes, relatively easy. If I feel like I'm, <laughs> you know, it's becoming a little more difficult. I'll throw in a hard workout here or there to remind myself of what it feels like to feel that pain and that discomfort. Almost none of it is timed. It's all kind of by feel. I don't want to know how fast I'm running. I don't want to know, you know, what my splits are because all that takes away from, you know, doing or experience the activity for the reasons that I'm trying to pursue it right now.
1: Can I ask you a follow-up question, Steve? How do you stay motivated then? Because I've trained for races and had very um, specific training plans with a specific training goal, and that's what keeps you motivated. And now, in the last you know, year and a half, I haven't had any races, haven't had any training plan. I'm purely going out, running, you know, whatever I feel like that day, Um and it's hard to stay motivated because, you know, I'm personally not one of those people who loves to run. I know I'm doing it for the exercise, for the cardio, for the health benefits, for potentially the mental benefits. But how do you stay motivated when you don't have a goal?
2: I, I tend to set a minimum standard for myself. So like an expectation. So my expectation is that five days a week, I'm going to run. Now, that could be just like getting out the door, as I said, for like 30 minutes, which in my head is like a really short run, or it could be something longer. But I have this minimum expectation of five days a week, I'm going to go out and run at least 30 minutes. And if I do that, it's going to be good. So I, I, I don't think it's almost like brushing my teeth. Like I don't need the motivation to go out and run 30 minutes, five days a week, because I've just been doing it for so long that like, that doesn't feel like a big task, uh, to me. Um, so maybe it's a little bit of perspective and my motivation, like anything beyond that is, is, uh, you know, bonus. And that's where that motivation comes in, where some days I feel super motivated and I'm like, I'm going to go longer or I'm going to do a hard workout because like I feel motivated to do so. So in a weird way, I kind of only have to call upon my motivation when I really need it and not every day if that makes any sense whatsoever.
0: And I'd say that you have been pretty motivated because you end up being pretty active most weeks and you end up running. I don't know, 20, 23 miles, which for you is pretty good most weeks. So maybe it's more like the psychology versus the actual doing well, the yeah, thing. I
1: guess like for me, like to feel motiv- in my head, I have this idea that if I am like excited to do something and I've like, you know, if I'm, if I'm eager to do something that that's motivation, right. As opposed to just because I did it doesn't mean I was motivated to do it. So I right. like, you know what I mean? So but I, are you
0: motivated to brush your teeth?
1: Um, Am I motivated to brush my teeth? Uh, Yes.
0: So Caitlin struggles with this. She's very literal. I think what I'm getting at is like at some point, like the activity becomes a part of what you do. Um, All right. So unlike Steve, I was never the best in the country at what I did. So I did not get burned out on goals. But um, I also take something that I heard my friend Ryan say, which is I'm not trying to win at my hobby. So it's very easy for me to get too serious about strength training, and then like it just becomes draining. So where I'm at is um, I don't want to have to think about it. I love doing it. So I hire a coach because everyone can benefit from a coach. He writes my workouts. He knows exactly the place that this fits in my life. I want to be serious. I want to get better. Um, We joke I want to be as good as possible, but the as possible part is a big part of it. So what are my goals? Um, I want to lift as much weight as possible across deadlift, squat, and bench press. And what's my constraint? Outside of maybe the week or two before I'm going to test, which is maybe at most three times a year, I never change my behavior in other aspects of my life because of strength training. So if I'm at a point where I don't want to go on a walk with my dog, Because I need to rest after strength training or I don't want to go on a walk with my dog because the next day I'm doing a heavy deadlift, then it's taken up too big of a spot in my life. Um, The good news is I'm not good enough. My coach tells me over and over for that to really have any impact. Um, So back to eating food, he's like, just eat a little bit more food. Um, So for me, what does it look like? I love it because it's got like very clear constraints and boundaries. I train four days a week for about an hour and 10 minutes. I have an optional fifth day. And then I'm just super active aerobically, walking, hiking, chasing our kid around. And that's what I do. And then I send the videos to Steve. And he never responds. Never, ever, ever responds. I just, you know, I don't need the external validation of the masses on Instagram or Twitter. I just want Steve. Or me. Or Caitlin. I don't even send him to Caitlin. She's never seen these videos. Maybe she's seen like two. My coach doesn't see him. I am just insecure of it. Steve was so freaking fast, and I just want Steve to get one video, and the iPhone makes it so easy. All you got to do is hold it down and hit the little heart, and then I'll see a heart on the video, and I'll know it came from you, and I'll be content. Just one little heart, Steve. What do I got to do for a heart?
2: I'm just trying to make sure you're never content, Brad.
0: How much how motivate how, what do I have to deadlift to get a heart from you?
2: I, I you know the thing is I don't even know what is like heavy in deadlifting. So it doesn't it doesn't compute, you know? I I can can I lift Steve? I can lift
0: I I can lift 6 of Steves and it doesn't even make me the strongest person in my neighborhood.
2: What once you once you look like Ryan Hall and do what he's doing, then I'll then I'll give you that heart, you know. All
0: right. Well, with that um probably a good place to end we appreciate y'all coming along for the ride thank you caitlin for being such a wonderful moderator um we'll probably do this again in a couple of months because it's fun for us it helps us to refine our thinking it lets us know what topics you guys are all wrestling with and um you know pay attention it depends uh i think that that is the the biggest theme and um hold us accountable. You know, Our job is to provide a toolkit of different tools that work in different situations. And that's what we try to do in our writing, our podcast. And your job is to have those tools, understand them, um, listen to what we have to say, but also through your own life experience, figure out when it makes sense to use what tools. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe,
2: rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.